Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 19. And the last time, the last message was titled, Don't Get in God's Way. This morning's title is, In God We Trust. Oh, where does that sound familiar? <laughs> we have it on our currency, but do we really act as if we trust Him? Well, we're talking about a situation and a civilization this morning that existed some 2,800 years ago. You know, those from Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, Technically, they were all Israelites, whether it was the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were put to the test with circumstances. Um, we're going to look at also the Egyptians, who the Egyptians trusted in, you know. And, and we get the same opportunities to either trust God, to believe the promises in His Word, or to just kind of hedge our bets and insulate ourselves and kind of do it our own way because we're, we're frightened. We're fearful. You know, we're human beings. We're frail creatures. So we're going to look at what happened back then. We're going to amazingly make the application today because God's Word is living. It's in- eternal. Um, and we're going to take it in seven parts. So just a, a humorous, local kind of picture of trust. <laughs> so if you go about six pews back, Maria, is, and I had permission to share this. She had told me one Sunday, Pastor Joe, um, one of the pews broke. <laughs> so she goes, I'll, I'll guard it until service is over so nobody sits on it and gets hurt. So that week, along with the many other things I do, um, I, it was my job. I've been doing fixing pews lately. But her husband blessed me by coming in. And we both worked on this pew. We reconstructed it. We put in a different foundation. We tested it out. And we thought it was good to go. So Maria comes in this Sunday or the next Sunday and the next Sunday and she's still sitting in the same spot. That shows that she trusted in the work that her husband and her pastor did because if the next Sunday and the Sunday after in consecutive Sunday she was sitting over here, I kind of might have got offended. I might have think, well, she doesn't trust me and she certainly doesn't trust her husband. But <laughs> So this is, you know, we can say I trust you. Oh yeah, I really trust you. But then our behaviors and our mannerisms can, say, can reinforce that or can say something different. So let's jump in. Chapter 19. And it says, The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at His presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fall or will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council. And they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. And a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, if you're new to the church, we take books and we go into series. We do everything chronologically. And what I do is, if you're new, I try to get you up to speed as much as I can. So we're speaking about an old civilization. Uh, we'll talk about God's reasons for why he said these things through the prophet. But the first out of seven is the prophecies against Egypt. 
a foretelling of confusion and disarray. Now, Egypt was the epicenter in the ancient world. You know, if, even if we don't know a lot about history, we know about the ancient Egyptians. We know about the pyramids. We know about a lot of things, you know, just from either hearing it or seeing it on TV or maybe in, in school. But they were the epicenter of, of power at times. Definitely academia and knowledge. They had one of the, the foremost renowned libraries in Alexandria. You know, today we have computers, but back in the day, they were known for their knowledge and academics. Okay, so just kind of getting you up to speed on this. Sadly, though, they worshipped all these weird, freakish gods. And there's only one god, and certainly he took offense to that. Um, and it's amazing how, you, and you can see today, somebody can be so smart, but be foolish in other areas. You know, they had the beetle god, and the cat god, and the frog god, and, you know, this is what they had. So God was disciplining them, trying to also get them off this wide road that leads to destruction that Jesus speaks about in the New Testament. And I've been asked about this. You know, sometimes I read the, the Bible and it seems, you know, some people struggle with the Old Testament. They feel it's kind of hard or it's kind of harsh. But, you, you, you know, I, I don't know about you, but God can kind of take this in two ways. He can allow unlimited prosperity on the earth. Unlimited, answer every one of our carnal prayers and um, we can be spiritually deceived and then go to be with him and realize that we have fallen short spiritually and then be judged and but wait, what do you mean god you never told me these things what's going on or and this is the god that he is he can allow tragedy he can allow difficult times he can allow things in our lives that get our attention and cause us to stop just looking at ourselves all the time and look up you know consider him Right? So tragedy sometimes is the impetus to us seeing that there's more to life than just me or my own, what I believe is immortality because we're mortal beings. We know that. Right? So God, again, with, even with all these surrounding nations, his desire was to get them to repent and turn to him. You know, he's shaking things up a little bit. Verse 1, he rides on a swift cloud. This is a picture of speed and surety. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It says that he'll make their idols, their little gods, they'll totter, uh, they'll be futile. Uh, actually, Bill is here this morning, the, uh, the leader of our children's ministry, and he went heavily into Exodus. Uh, really great studies. But in, in the Exodus, you know, even the ten plagues, if you look at every single plague, frogs, lice, boils, darkness, the Nile, right? What God was doing is he was striking at the heart of all of Egypt's false gods. Because all the things I just mentioned, and then some, they, they trusted in these false gods to protect them. And God struck at the heart of every one of these false gods in the, in, the ten, uh, you know, in the ten plagues. So it's interesting to look at. And many of the Egyptians actually started to follow the true God as a result of this. They stopped believing in the pharaohs, and they stopped believing in these false gods. And they started looking up. So it's, it's a good thing. Verse 2, the, the prophecies were... Um, civil disturbances in Egypt, uh, wicked leaders in Egypt, and, and neither their gods, their wise men, nor their leaders could save them. Uh, I'm, as you know, if you've been here for long enough, I am a history buff. I love history. If we could put up the first map of Africa, and it shows, you know, Africa is a continent with 50 no 54 nations today, but a lot of these countries existed in some form or another, maybe different borders, th for thousands of years. So you look at Egypt, 
And back then, Egypt had more of a span. Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia. We spoke uh, last Sunday about this African regionalization, which was very smart on their part because the wicked Assyrians were up here and they were conquering everybody. So these, these nations or these areas or these people groups would start to unite to be a bulwark or a counter to the Assyrians. If you know your history, the Assyrians were horrible. So what, what God said was that the gnomes... Egypt had gnomes or provinces. They had these little kind of regions. And at one point, the, the provinces started fighting. So, hey, here you go. This, a civil war, in, 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 in essence. A lot of countries have gone through this. And what that did was that allowed Nubia. Again, we can look at Cush. This was known as the area of Cush. It was also known as Ethiopia, depending on the time period. And in this area down here, it was known as the Nubians. So if you've studied African history, some of these things you know. But the, uh, the, it was a leader named P.A., and he was Nubian. Him and his forces actually conquered Egypt, and then his brother Shabaka came after him, and they ruled Egypt's 25th dynasty. There were several rulers, and two of them were Nubians, ethnic Nubians. So they conquered Egypt, and then they regionalized this area, very smart, to counteract the Assyrians, but unfortunately it wasn't enough. So you can see a lot of these things going on in, in the Scripture, and then you pick up your history book, and you're like, yeah, that, those things did happen. That's pretty fascinating. Um, unfortunately, the Assyrian Esarhaddon actually conquered that area of Africa in 670 B.C. But Egypt had idols, they had charmers, they had mediums, they had sorcerers, and they were useless to help. And today, you know, you have the horoscope, you have these uh, online uh, mediums, the popular mediums, and a lot of them are frauds. Maybe some of them actually do have accurate information, but if they're not getting their information from God, they're getting it from demonic sources. Uh, I've referenced before about my home phone number is one digit off from a popular medium in the area. <laughs> you know where this is going. <laughs> so I had a, a call to my house. I pick up the phone. It sounded like a young lady. And she was asking for the medium. I said, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number, but what are you looking for? And she, so I kind of talked to her a little bit, and I shared the gospel with her about God and how she was heading in the wrong direction, and she listened for a while, and then politely we hung up. Um, 30 seconds later, the phone rings again, and it's her. <laughs> so I said, now, didn't I tell you that this is really not the, you know, it, hey, you call my house. <laughs> you get what you get when you call me. <laughs> But I was trying to help her to understand, stop looking at these, just like the Egyptians did. Stop looking at that. Look to God, because he's the one who created all this. So uh, the Egyptians trusted in worldly wisdom, their own abilities, their idols. But again, if you look at American culture, we're so smart too, aren't we? We have so much technology, especially in medicine and surgery, and you know, uh, people from other countries come here to get operated on. You know, we've got the best hospitals and trauma centers and surgeons, but we can still be foolish when it comes to spiritual things. You know, someone smart uh, intellectually is not an indicator of their cho good choices spiritually. We have to keep that in mind. Verse 5, we continue. It says, The waters, uh, of course, of the Nile will fail or fail from the sea, and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul, and the brooks of of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither, the papyrus reeds by the river, or the river Nile, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither and be driven away and be no more. 
the fishermen also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. So 5 to 10, 2 out of 7 is the drying up of the Nile. And this was an attack of the Egyptian false god, and there were a few false gods of the Nile, but one particular false god was named Hapi. Except when he saw what happened to the Nile, he probably wasn't that happy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, couldn't help myself. This 4,200-mile river, the Nile, which still exists, obviously, goes through even today for thousands of years. It's gone through uh, cycles, and it's called in- inundation and then relinquishment. Inundation is it overflows its banks, it, the nutrients from the, the river are brought onto the land, it hydrates. The, it's very fascinating for thousands of years how, and I think the five African countries, the Nile touches or runs through at some point. And actually it runs uh, south to north. Um, it, looking at the map is not a proper indicator of how rivers run. Anyway, there were industries, obviously fishing, there's fish in the Nile. There was also papyrus, which they would write on. It was like a heavy paper. Uh, it's actually somebody brought me a piece of papyrus. I have it in my office. Uh, flax, uh, which they made clothing out of, crops, food, and hampering these cycles. Now, did the Nile completely dry up? Probably not. But the relinquishment cycle was probably a heavier cycle, and he probably just kind of attenuated it so it didn't, so it got the people's attention, right? Pay attention. Listen, it's not, everything's not going to be as, as if it always was. You have to consider God. And he got their attention. But, you know, I wonder what in our life has to dry up before God gets our attention. You know, you can talk about denial. You can talk about our own lives. Sometimes we trust in something so much. Again, the, the title of today's message is In God We Trust. What things are we trusting in in the world that we're putting ahead of God? You know, God is not going to beg us for our attention. If we want to put him last and we want to run here and there, we have free will. He'll allow us to do that. But I found that a better way for me personally is when I trust God and I always put him first, even when it comes to healing. I always give them like the legal clause, the first right of refusal. You know, Lord, I'm praying for this person to get well. I'm praying for me to get well. Do, do what you will. Is it always his will? No, it isn't always his will. But I always try to. Try to. I'm not saying I do because I'm not perfect. I always try to put him first, give him first place. Now, some see, again, if you're new to prophecy, it's a little, a little confusing. You're reading it. You're, so what are you talking about? Something that happened back then? Are you talking about something that happened today, something in the future? The answer is yes, <laughs> all the above. So when God speaks prophecy, a lot of times he would tell the people at the time, at that time period, this is what's going to happen like right away. Then he would allow maybe centuries or millennia to pass, and then that kind of fulfillment would happen again. And there's some prophecies that actually haven't come to pass yet. They are in our future. They're in our future. They didn't happen yet. So when we look at this, uh, some see the far prophecy, actually not that long ago, 1970, of the, what's called the High Aswan Dam in Egypt. Egypt had a low Aswan Dam on the Nile. Then they also built and completed in 1970 the High Aswan Dam. And all these things that happened or that are said in the scripture 
happen to a T. You know, mankind, what he tries to do is he sees something that God did in nature and he tries to perfect it. It doesn't always work very well. So the Aswan High Dam caused a lot of problems, but they spent a lot of money, so they were going to complete the project. It did produce electricity, but it did cause damage. It had uh, artifacts and, and archaeological sites had to be relocated. People lost their homes. They had to be relocated. This happened in the 1970s. In the 1970s, drought, damage to crops, fishing industry, and other ecological problems. And the truth is, folks, we can face the facts or we can be in denial. Oh boy, nobody got that one. <laughs> Continuing on, verse 11. It says, Surely the princes of Zoan, now these were the Egyptian princes, are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. Remember, Pharaoh was a title. People say, which Pharaoh? Pharaoh, boy, he lived a long time. No, he didn't. It was his title. He was the king. There were different Pharaohs, actually, over time. It says, how do you say to Pharaoh, I am son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived, or Noph was another name for ancient Memphis in Egypt. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which, which the head or tail, palm branch or bulrush may do." 11 through 15, 3, God strikes at the heart of the Egyptians' worldly wisdom and pride. Pride is a, is a destructive force. The Bible says that in Proverbs 16. You know, when we get prideful, I know from my, my life, we get stupid. We, we think that we're always right and we have the best judgment and we're the smartest person in the room, and that's problematic. It always has been. And God says this in His Scripture. So, it kind of reminds me, actually, of 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, if we could put that up, where God says, I will destroy wisdom, the wisdom in the, of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, this is actually speaking, the Apostle Paul wrote this, uh, some of the information he got from God, some of he tries to articulate to the people. So in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes it. And, you know, the, the Egyptians, they thought they were so smart. And then, and you see, you see these certain societies, the Greeks thought they were so smart. And today, many in academia, they think they're so smart. They think they're so smart that they discount God. In this context, it was the context of the gospel. What is the gospel? that God sent his son into the world to die for our sins, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you haven't put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you can do that today. We'll give you an opportunity at the end of service. So what happened was the, the Greeks, again, very smart, the great philosophers came out of Greece. But when the Christians were trying to reach the Greeks, a lot of times they were like, that's stupid. A man dies on a tree. Like this, it's, it's actually very deep. There, there, there's precedent set in the Old Testament about the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. It's actually very intellectual. But the Greeks, they just they wanted to rely on themselves. They didn't want to rely on, on some son of God who died on a tree and rose from the dead. 
Um, very interesting, though, as we look at this. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.19, the Apostle Paul says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Do, do highly intelligent people with multiple degrees have problems? Of course they do. They have problems in their families? Of course they do. They have problems in finances? Of course they do. So someone who's intellectual doesn't guarantee a safe passage through life. And God was saying, don't rely on this. Egyptians, Greeks, Americans, because you, you have to consider me, the Lord is saying. You have to reach out. You have to trust me and stop trusting in yourself so much. Good lessons. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear or the respect for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It, that's where it starts. Once you start looking up and you trust the Lord and you have a reverence for Him, all of a sudden you start to gain wisdom. I found that in my own life, right? All these things that are said in here are true. Because I lived 26 years in the world up to the age of 26. I did all kinds of wacky stuff. So I can tell you living in both sides, um, all these things that the Bible says are true. I didn't come out of the womb preaching the Word or anything like that. You can ask my mother. That's certainly for sure. But so, so God was destroying, and in a, in a disciplined way, He was kind of destroying a lot of what the Egyptians were trusting in. What are we trusting in? My son, actually, this is his second semester in engineering. It's extremely intense. There's calculus, there's physics, there's all these kinds of intense courses. And we had a little father-son talk uh, about college and academia and all this kind of stuff. And I said, don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't let what you see, the culture, what you learn, don't let it change your heart. Because ultimately... The Lord lasts forever. So let me give you an example. I love anatomy and physiology. My son would bring home blank pieces of paper with all these lines pointing to different parts of the body. And he'd go in his room one day and I took a pencil and I filled it all out and I got it right. I think I got a 95. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, but here's the deal, folks. The Bible says that we will, listen, we die, right? This flesh, you, you ever go to a funeral? You know somebody that passed away? We're all heading there at some point, right? It's, that's a fact, death and taxes. But the Bible says that when the Lord remakes everything, heaven and earth, our bodies will be remade too. So you could be the smartest person in, in the world. But in the afterlife, all your smarts are germane to an old system. Right? He's going to change us so that we'll never die, so that we have new bodies. That's pretty fantastic. We're going to get to learn anatomy and physiology all over again because there's going to be different laws. He speaks about the new heaven and the new earth without the curse of sin, without the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the tectonic plates underneath the crust with all the cracks and the, the, the shifting of the earthquakes and the volcanoes. He's going to make that change too because we're not going to have earthquakes and volcanoes. We're not going to have hurricanes. We're not going to have death. So all the things, and listen, I'm all about learning. I still love to learn. But when, when God redoes everything, don't worship that. I told my son, listen, I, and I know some of us professors i've talked to them lovely people i always try to share if i can um i said some of these people these heady people go home and i kind of said a tongue-in-cheek i said they, they bow down to an altar with a book that's their god academics don't you become like that right christ is eternal stuff in this world is only germane to this world so this is what's happening uh, verse 14 he says, not a pretty picture. He speaks about the, the council of the Egyptians. 
Now again, you go, look up your history books, look up the different dynasties of Egypt, look up what happened, look up the civil disturbances. This was written in the 8th century circa B.C. All these things happened later. Um, everything he said came true. He says, The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, caused a confusion. They have caused Egypt to err, to make mistakes in judgment in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Like I said, I wasn't always a Christian. I've definitely seen this. I'm not going to go into detail. It's not pretty. Um, all I can say is the Bible's not politically correct. I can't stand up here and change words. People try to do that. Not going to do it. God tries to give us expressive and vivid pictures of things that are highly dysfunctional so that we don't do it. That's a loving God. Now we might say, oh, that's the wording. Listen, I'm not going to second guess God's wording. This is what he says. If you've seen it, it's not pretty, it's not good, it's not wise. Um, people die, they fall, things happen. Um, so this is what we're looking at. The Egyptians were thrown into disarray and confusion. Verse 16, In that day Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts which He waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts which He has determined against it. 16 and 17. Four. The fourth part out of seven is Egypt will be humbled, right? Fear will take root. Now, when he speaks about like women, in other words, and this is, this is my job, my difficult job, to bring you back almost 3,000 years, talk about culture, talk about patriarchal societies, talk about how things were different. Listen, the facts were the men were the warriors back then. And uh, what he was basically saying is, in, in a, a place like Egypt, if the men were removed and just the women were left, it would be a fearful thing. Okay, so he's kind of giving you an analogy here. Today, things are different. Um, as I look around this church, I know there's about half a dozen ladies who are kickboxers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I know that if somebody comes in here and tries to cause trouble with me, I got backup, man. I got backup. So, well, all right, so we continue on. <laughs> Judah, Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Again, to the Egyptians, pff, Judah, little Judah, get out of here. Well, it turned out that after the Assyrians took over that Egyptian uh, regionalization, Judah, Jerusalem was actually spared. And Jerusalem and Judah ga gained power, and it took a while for Egypt to actually regain her former glory. So that actually was a true statement, as they all are. Far fulfillment is that Israel today is more powerful than many major nations that surround her, including Egypt. So if you look at a far fulfillment, this actually is a, a, another true statement, whether you're looking at near fulfillment in prophecy or far fulfillment in prophecy. Continuing on, verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language, language of Canaan, or speak Hebrew, and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Speaking about Egypt, that's pretty awesome. Again, people who don't know the Bible, and I'm <laughs> some of the, our college kids, they come back and they say, this professor said this, and I'll say, tell your professor if he likes, I'll come to your school and we'll debate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I love debate. 
you can read the Bible and you can try to put our culture and, and, and eisegete our culture into the Scripture and it never works. You can read the Bible and take it out of context and make it say anything you want it to say. But you have to read the Bible in its context. You have, that's why we do a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study. Okay, so what is, why does God, I believe, God discipline a lot of these nations, these pagan nations? Because He loves them. He wants them to turn to Him. That's the way I'm looking at things, but He does have to deal with them. It says, then, then, one, then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike it and heal it. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's not. They will return to the Lord, and He will be entreated by them and heal them. Wow. So 18 through 22. Five out of seven is that God will afflict Egypt to save Egypt. Right? Afflict them to save them. And it's an interesting concept. Verse 21, Egypt will know the Lord. Let's look at the near prophetic fulfillment. Um, This one I had to search because I didn't know this, but there was a priest from Jerusalem. This is a historical fact. I found it in secular sources, right? A priest named Onias who came to Egypt and they let him and he built a temple, probably took him a while, to the Lord as the one in Jerusalem. He made like a, a model of it and he builds a temple to the Lord. Now he's bringing the monotheistic God, right? Yahweh, God, into Egypt. And they're polytheistic. They're worshiping all these kinds of crazy things. This was in the second century BC, roughly. Um, and he did it in a province of Heliopolis, the city of the sun. Remember, the, the sun was one of their many gods. So he comes in with this temple. They help him to do it. And they start worshiping the true God in Egypt. That's fascinating. Now, if you look at the time of Jesus. By the time of Jesus, there already was a large Jewish community in Egypt. Okay? Large Jewish community. I'll talk about current events too. Um, Later on, after the time of Christ, there was a large Christian community in Egypt. Do you ever hear the word Coptic Christian? Oh, a lot of you have. (laughs) Um, I have friends who are Egyptian, uh, who speak Egyptian. They're ethnic Egyptians. They're Copts, C-O-P-T-S. And they go back and forth to Egypt and they give me current events on what's going on in the church in Egypt. It's actually quite fascinating. Now, something happened in 642 A.D. After the the death of Muhammad, I believe, the Islamic Caliphate Rashidum and the successive Caliphate, the Umayyads, they had come into Egypt and they conquered. And of course, they brought Islam there and, and over, the, the, over time, it, they actually persecuted the Jews and the Christians because they were trying to convert them by the sword. They considered them infidels. Um, however, today, Coptic Christians get their churches burned. Uh, their churches are sometimes blown up. Uh, it's, you, we have to pray for our brothers and sisters who believe what we believe, but they're just in areas that are hostile. Right? So Egypt is very interesting, and those Christians are holding their own. There's a lot of Coptic Christians who still remain faithful to the Lord, even though they're suffering so much persecution. Now, the far fulfillment is that when the Lord Jesus returns in, in our future, he's going to eradicate all that. And the, the, <laughs> the Egyptian Christians are going to be thrilled to death that that yoke has been taken off their back because their Savior, Christ, will come and deliver them. And all the things they're suffering now won't be anymore. History, I love history. It's fascinating. Verse 22, that the Lord will strike Egypt and heal it. 
Again, what does that mean? Well, it's like a parent disciplining a child who's going in dysfunction. They're self-destructive. They're um, doing things that are dangerous. And, they, and that discipline needs to wake the child up to realize they're going on the wrong path. So the Lord kind of does that too as a spiritual parent to people, right? Um, you look at boot camp. You look at the police academy. You know, uh, they break you down. For what reason? To take the individuality out of you. They shave your head. They all give you the same uniform. They, they put you through these grueling. And what happens is it forces you to lose your individuality and come together as a team. Teamwork is very important. You know, I was a police officer in my former life. Uh, I did 25 years, and I still remember the police academy. And the drill instructors, they were awful. But when it, w- when it was graduation week, we all got our badges, they were all nice. They gave us food. They were hugging us and shaking our hands. And I, I still was a little bit, you're weird, man. I hated you, you know what I'm saying? But the idea was to break you down so that you can rise back up as a team. In this case, what God did was he disciplined the people to precipitate positive change, to save their souls, right? Verse Hebrews 12.6, read this, you know. Hebrews 12.6 tells us that God disciplines those he loves, now, even as a Christian, even as a pastor, I'm not perfect. I've been disciplined, you know, and I have to say, okay, Hebrews 12, 6, it's because he loves me and he's trying to get me to, and I do. I'm like, all right, Lord, you got my attention. What is it? He disciplines those he loves. Sometimes I look up and I'm like, Lord, don't love me so much. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> love that guy. Love Pastor Paul and Pastor Vinny a little bit more than me. Yeah, I need a break here. But uh, it's, it's funny. So some of this actually coincides, uh, and again, if you're new to the church, we've been going through this series. Fascinating discussion of the uh, African regionalization last chapter, really neat stuff. Uh, the Egyptians, uh, actually how many countries in Africa today. I actually had to brush up on my African history because I didn't know how many, actually the majority of nations in Africa um, have over 55% Christians in their population. That's fantastic. And we talked about the interaction between the continent and the Bible and how God tried to keep getting his word down there, and he did a good job. Now again, our African brothers and sisters, right? Sudan, in many places, they're also persecuted. They're trying to worship, and the government forces are bombing their churches. These are our brothers and sisters. We're going to spend eternity with them. So there's a lot of fruit in Africa, but again, a lot of them are suffering. Well, we have freedom of worship. We need to pray for the persecuted church. So we, we read before, and we, we see this too, that the African region ends up bringing uh, gifts to Jerusalem. They, and again, this is old. This was pre-Jesus. So they, they start to bring gifts. Uh, they start to worship the Lord. Um, they start to have this, this relationship with the southern Israelites. Really, really good stuff. Um, you know, and some of you are like, gee, this near fulfillment, far fulfillment. I, just if any of you have really kind of looked at this and said, you know, I'm really getting the hang of this near fulfillment, far ful- fulfillment, kind of, you know, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to hear your, your stories about it. It takes a while to get the hang of it. Again, God is a genius. He's God. He created our brain. So as smart as we are, he's far smarter than, our, than we are. And we have to kind of catch up with his knowledge. He puts this stuff out. Some of it's very heady, but some of it's very simple, like the gospel. You want to be saved? You don't have to read a book and we quiz you. And, you know, it doesn't work like that. You just believe and you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
That's why he died for your sins. He did all the heavy lifting, so to speak. Verse 23, it says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, and remember, at this point they were fighting. It was horrible. So this is a miracle. In that day, Israel will be one of those with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So, you know, whatever, wherever you're from, whatever your background, God loves all people. That's why he sent his son to die for our sins. If we look at the second map, you look at three different uh, areas, uh, Egypt in the south, uh, Israel in the middle, and Assyria. So here's Egypt, here's Israel. This is actually modern. They're actually on the border now. Another fascinating fact is in the last several decades, the last about 40 years, there's been a great coming together. Now, Israel and Egypt fought wars before in modern times. Recently, in the last 40 years, they've actually worked together really well. Um, they've, they work together to fight terrorism, to root out the terrorist tunnels. Just look up w when you have some spare time what's going on between Egypt and Israel. The governments are in support of each other. So Egypt, Israel, and th this is Syria, but Assyria is right in this area. So there would be this kind of, and this kind of represents, some people see a representation of Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Um, one son settled down in this area, one settled here, one settled in, in this area. Pretty fascinating stuff. Only God can do that. Only God can bring that peace together that, you know, we don't necessarily see in our culture on the earth. That's why as Christians, we have to be agents of peace. There's enough people in our culture yelling and screaming, dividing this group and that group. As Christians, we're the ones who are supposed to be like more, Dr. Martin Luther King. We're supposed to be the voices of, of calm, of peace, of bringing people together. I, I get very suspicious when I see pastors or people with clergy titles that are stirring the pot when they're supposed to be bringing the calm and the healing. That's our job. The Bible says that we have the ministry of reconciliation. Not only do we have the ability as Christians, sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, to bring all people together, most importantly, to bring people to God. And when you bring people to God, then they start to see others around them better. It's just the way it works. You bring anybody closer to God, and their surroundings become more harmonious, or they're supposed to be. Okay, so uh, six out of, out of seven is Egypt in the Millennial Kingdom, a picture of God's grace. Just going to read, uh, chapter 20 is very short. This is the last part. These six verses... Now, you, you were kind of going from a big picture, macrocosmic to microcosmic. Now we're focusing on the man, the prophet Isaiah. What did God ask him to do during this time, and why did he do it? It says, in the year that Tartan, that was a, uh, a title, the commander-in-chief of the Assyrians, came to Ashdod, which is in Philistine territory, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. You know what's great about the Bible, and, and I look at this as compared to like Nostradamus and you know, some of these people that come later. The Bible gives details. Now for us, we can just look in our history books and go, oh yeah, there was a, um, a Sargon, and there was a Sennacherib, and there was an Esarhaddon, and the Bible talks about all them. There was a, an Ashdod, and there was a Syrians. 
The Bible gives details. So you can, you know, God says it. Okay, is it really true? I'm going to look all this stuff. Yeah, God's always right. Nothing vague here. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go and remove the sackcloth from your body. They had inner and outer garments. And take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt their glory. Because the Israelites now, they had God, and some of the people in Egypt did too, but the governments were all messed up. And what was, which is not uncommon in the world, is it? <laughs> so what happened was, the, the southern kingdom of Judah wanted to make this alliance, and I'll just cover this briefly because I talked about it last Sunday, with this regional, this, this Egypt-Ethiopia regionalization. Those in Jerusalem wanted to make an alliance with them to thwart the Assyrians. God said, don't do it. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Because what happened was when God was, showed victory for the people in Jerusalem, that those two would-be alliances could see, wow, um, we didn't do anything and God did it all. And that was God's plan. Don't start making a whole bunch of, you know, well, they're going to, you know, World War I, you know, you had the, well, the, in World War II, the Axis and the Allies, and everybody was jumping on board to see whose side they could be on. God was saying to Jerusalem, just chill. Don't be in a hurry to jump on anybody's side because I'm going to deal with this wicked army directly and you're going to be pleased, and so are those in Egypt. They're going to say, wow, your God is amazing. And God's plan was to bring more people to God. Pretty interesting. So he says, then they shall be, and, and, and the Israelites, instead of trusting God, and God we trust, they were trusting in people. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation in Egypt, their glory, when God should have been their expectation and glory. And the inhabitants of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation, wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Wow, God's, you ever feel like God's put you in this position that's like impossible? If you've been a Christian for a while, you'll feel that way. So it's common. Uh, and you know, God's like, well, go in this direction. Well, God's like, well, I got this covered. And, and you just got all these questions, but, but how and when? And you know, sometimes God, like Abraham, would say, you know, leave your family, go this way, go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to take care of it. Abraham had questions. Sarah had questions. We have questions. But he was telling the Israelites, don't panic. You've got to trust me. I got this. I got this. So seven out of seven is this object lesson of Isaiah. What was he doing? He took out his outer, uh, and usually had, in the Middle East, it's funny. We think if we were, lived in the Middle East, we'd have a T-shirt or a tank top and shorts. We'd get burned. They're smart in the Middle East. They cover their heads with cloth. They cover their bodies. It's an insulative effect. So what he did was he told them to take off your outer garment. What that would, le would leave is him bare-chested, but not completely naked. He'd have a loincloth to cover his private parts. Um, God wouldn't do anything to make it creepy. Um, so, and, and what he did was um, Isaiah was supposed to behave like a prisoner of war. And this was an object lesson to tell the people, what's Isaiah doing? What the heck is he going to get sunburned? He took his sandals off. All he's got is a loincloth. This is what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to come and everyone's going to look like, like me. 
when they break through your defenses. You're not going to stop the Assyrians. You've got to trust God. So Isaiah was an object lesson as a prisoner of war. In context, Tartan of Assyria in 711 B.C. uh, conquered one of the main cities in Philistine territory, which was Ashdod, right? Verse 6, I'll read it again. And the inhabitants of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? So the Israelites had to learn that Egypt was going to fall too. Everybody around them was going to fall. You better just trust God and don't make the situation worse. And we can do that too, folks. Sometimes there's a situation we're not being sensitive to what the Lord is showing us and we keep putting our hands in it and it keeps getting worse and worse. Some smiles. You know, you, you've been there, I've been there, we've all been there. Um, really cool. Uh, I'm going through Second Kings on Wednesday nights. Uh, we're actually going to go in two Wednesdays. I'm going to be in the time of Hezekiah. So for those of you that know the Bible, Hezekiah was an awesome king. A, a really good guy. He's, he turned a lot of these things around. He started to... He was trusting the Lord. His father was bad, but he started really a lot of really good reforms. So we're going to get into Hezekiah. Um, most likely, Isaiah here is also speaking to Hezekiah, saying, don't panic. You've got to trust God. Don't get weak. Don't make mistakes because you're afraid. And we can do that too. We get afraid, we have fear, and we make bad choices. 3,000 years later, 2,800 years later, people are still people. So, in closing, the sermon title, In God We Trust. Unfortunately, at this time in the world, world history was a disaster. You had everybody fighting. The Assyrians, after the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. After the Babylonians, it was the, uh, the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. It just was crazy. However, World War I, World War II, right? 100 million, uh, World War II, body count. 100 million people died. That's a lot. I mean, that's a tenth of a billion. And for the population down there in the 1930s and 40s, that was a lot of people. So, but you know what's interesting? I've, I've read about some incredible things that happened in the middle of that war on all sides, how people were repenting and turning to God. So God was saying, listen, you, you guys got to stop looking just at yourselves and each other. You got to look at me. I can fix this, but you got to trust me. Right? Is it any different today? We have world leaders uh, posturing left and right in Europe, in Asia, here. You know, what can they do for us? Right? For thousands of years, man has tried to solve man's problems, and it just gets worse. But what about us individually, people of faith? Is God the one that we trust in? Or do our choices, our lifestyle, our behavior tell a different story? Because we can all say amen and praise the Lord and all that Christianese jargon, but that's not what gets us to heaven. Coming to church doesn't get us to heaven. C- coming to church is just cool fellowship with other believers, learning about the Word. What gets us to heaven is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? The sermon title is In God We Trust. If you don't know the Lord and you want, you want to go to heaven, <laughs> you want to be saved, you better trust in God because I can't save you. This church, whether it's Protestant, Catholic, Calvary Chapel, they can't save you. Only the Lord can save you. He died for your sins. Are you going to trust Him or are you going to trust yourself? Well, I didn't kill anybody. Please don't take that to your deathbed. I just, I'm being nice. You know? I'm being a concerned person. Don't wait until your last breath to hang your hat on, well, I never killed anybody, so I should go to heaven. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Christ came and died for our sins. So at the end of the day, God was asking his people and everyone around him to trust him. And he desires the same for us today. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.